Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So the way that this is sometimes interpreted is, be careful where you practice your righteousness. Don't pray in public don't let anybody know that you give. Don't do any of those things. But then if you think about that for about 30 seconds, you realize that cannot be what this passage means. Jesus prays all the time in front of people. He commands his disciples to give in the temple. It's, this passage is not about location. It's about motivation. It's about your motivation. Every single one of these clauses is so that something. What do you think the result of your action is going to be? What do you think other people are going to think about you when you do this? That's, that's not a location question. That's a motivation question. And then on the flip side, all of these say something like in chapter 6, verse 1, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And truly I say to you, these people that, that give so that other people can see, they've received their reward. But those who give in secret, their Father sees them and he will reward them. And when you pray, don't pray so that other people will, will think that you're heard because of your many phrases and your much stammering, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. So the question is not public or private. The question is, who do you want approval from? Other people or God? Who do you want, who, who is motivating you to do this? And who do you want it to result in an increased relationship with? Other people or God? See, what Jesus is doing in this passage is just brilliant. He's setting up two types of people. One person who does the right thing but doesn't have a heart that's in tune with God. 
And one person who does the right thing and has a heart that beats for the way God has described giving and praying and laying up treasures in heaven. And Jesus is going to give us two types of people in this passage. You have the righteous and you have the hypocrite. So you've got a righteous person does it this way and a hypocrite does it this way. Now we, we use the word hypocrite to mean something slightly different than what the Bible uses the word hypocrite for. So follow this. We think of hypocrite as someone who says one thing but does another. Someone who isn't what they claim to be. And we typically think about it as somebody who wants to be seen for doing something but doesn't actually do that thing. So somebody that wants to be known as being just or somebody that wants to be known as being generous but isn't just or generous. That's actually a lower bar than what Jesus is doing. He's like, I'm, even, I'm not even going to talk about those people. Hypocrite for Jesus, the word hypocrite in Greek is actually the word for actor. It's where you get somebody that's on a stage, they're wearing a mask, and they're playing a role. Because biblically speaking, these people are doing the right thing, but they don't have the heart to go with it. So it's actually the reverse. It's not just saying something and then not doing it. It's doing something but not meaning it. Doing something and having the wrong motivation. Doing something and being out of tune. So these people, these hypocrites, Jesus, Jesus goes after the Pharisees for being hypocrites. But one thing you've got to know about the Pharisees is they were externally doing all the right things. The gripe against the Pharisees is not, oh, everybody thinks they're so religious, but they're not. No, they, they are. They're giving. They're fasting. They're studying. They're memorizing. They are doing everything that Jesus says here. And he says to them in chapter 15, you hypocrites, you honor me with your lips. And we could include and with your tithes and with your giving and with your fasting and with your praying, but your heart is far from me. Your heart is far from me. This is just a reminder to us that this whole sermon is about righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? And the easiest way to think about being righteous is to think about following rules. But if you do that, you will never be righteous. The, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus says, you may have heard it said that if you keep up appearances, you'll be righteous, but you won't. You may have heard it said that if you don't murder, that's good. But I say if you have hatred in your heart, you're guilty of the same thing. I would say if you live an external good life, Jesus says, but your heart isn't there, that's not righteousness. Righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount is a wholehearted orientation of your life around God. It is a seamless and continuous devotion to God, who he is, what he has said. So instead of doing things where other people can see, the righteous person does them because they're all about the relationship with God. The hypocrite does things because it's all about their relationship with other people. And the righteous person knows that if you go to your father and you have a good relationship with him, if you remove any obstacles with your relationship with him, then you will live the blessed life that he talks about at the beginning of this sermon. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness because that person will be filled. That person will be satisfied. That person will actually get what all of this is leading to, which is the all-satisfying desire that we have to be in tune with God.
So the righteous person, Jesus sets an example with his own life. Do it where your father can see it. Be focused on your father. Public acts can be great, but your heart in secret needs to be aligned with God. And so if this is a description at the beginning of this about what it looks like to be out of tune, I want to put maybe the most famous passage in the Bible in context of this prayer, this Lord's Prayer, is all about how to get in tune. How do you get in tune? How do you make sure that you're not a hypocrite and that you are righteous? How do you make sure that your motivations are right? Certain kinds of people really struggle with this. Have you ever spliced your your motivations down so far? Is there anything that I might have done behind this that was for other people? Jesus is saying, if you count your motives, if you sort through them, you'll never be able to get it close enough until you start here. Pray this way. Notice that this is actually a diversion from the flow of this passage. This passage, like chapter 5, follows a very clear format. Jesus is such an organized teacher. You can see he starts the examples all the same way. He ends them the same way. He gives an idea. He illustrates it. He is a very organized teacher. And in this section, you're going to get three examples. The first one and the third one are short. And the second one has this long illustration in the middle. In fact, this is the exact center of the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7. Chapter 5 is all about the law. Chapter 6 is all about righteous living. And chapter 7, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, chapter 7 is all about the practical aspects of a heart that's been transformed. And in the middle of the sermon, the very hinge point of the sermon, Jesus says, let me, let me stop for a second. When you pray, pray Like this, he says, our Father in heaven. These are words that we could put on autopilot, most of us. We've heard this a million times. This might be the most famous portion of your Bible. This and like John 3.16 and Psalm 23 are all up in the Mount Rushmore of Bible passages that everyone knows. But do you know why Jesus says this? Do you know what the context is? This is a prayer all about if you want to get right, if you want to get in tune with God, pray this way. A couple of years ago, my brother and I went to New York City, and we were going to the Met, and it was because my brother is like a trained opera singer. He's super talented. He's really into that. I thought this would be so fun for his birthday. We went to the Met, and we were going to see Don Giovanni on a Friday night, and it was fantastic. We could barely see it, but we could hear it, and it was unbelievable. And and just all the intricacy and being there and the whole experience was amazing. And so that next day on a Saturday, I had to come home to be at church on Sunday, but my brother had a later flight on Saturday that ended up getting canceled. So he stays another night, and Sunday at the Met, they do an early afternoon performance of something shorter. And on this weekend, it was a shorter opera, but it was directed by and conducted by Placido Domingo, who's one of the three tenors. So Tucker decides that he's going to go back to the Met, and he's going to go to this. So he goes, and he goes up to the ticket window, and he buys a standing ticket, which at the Met, you can be in the back, and you can stand at these little bars for a lot cheaper. And so he buys one of those, and he's standing there right about the time the thing is going to begin. And this older gentleman taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, are you by yourself? And he says, yeah, I had a canceled flight and just came back. He said, well, my wife didn't come. Why don't you come and sit with me? So Tucker's like, sure. So they start going down the side aisle, and they keep going and keep going and keep going, and they turn in on the second row. 
And he's like, we are sitting to where I could almost touch Placido's tails on his tux. And after the intermission, the guy gets up and he's like, that's all for me. Enjoy the show and leave. So Tucker's there just by himself. And when you're sitting that close, one of the things that you can see is the orchestra who's down in the pit. And the first thing the orchestra does, if you've been to something like this, is they make this horrendous sounding noise where everybody's playing all together at the same time. And what they're doing is they're tuning to each other. And unlike tuning a guitar, when you have multiple instruments, you don't just need the instruments to be in tune with themselves. You need the instruments to all be in tune with something that is a standard. And when you're down that close, from what I've heard, you realize there's one instrument that always sounds the tone. And the tone is an A. It's just an an A note, and it's the oboe that plays the A. And the reason for this is because the oboe cannot be tuned on the spot. It has a reed, and once that reed is set, you have to take the whole thing apart to adjust it. Whereas every other instrument has, is tunable, whether it's got strings or whether it's a wind instrument. And so the oboe sounds the true note. And everybody, no matter what they were tuned to before, everybody matches that note so that the whole orchestra can play together. And so once that note is sounded, you begin to fall in line with that, and then everything begins to sound wonderful. And I want you to back up from whatever you think about the Lord's Prayer this morning. I want you to think about the Lord's Prayer like that one note from the oboe. This is the standard. Okay, This is the tune that we're all going to play to. This is the one where if we are all on this same page, the whole body of Christ works together. N.T. Wright's book, if you're looking for a book on the Lord's Prayer, some people do whole sermon series on this. We're just going to do like a 10-minute flyover of the Lord's Prayer. But his, his book, The Lord and His Prayer, is a great book on the Lord's Prayer. But he intro, in, intros it this way. The Lord's Prayer reminds us that there is a larger God out there. Not just a celestial cleaner up and sorter out of all of our messes and wants. He is God. He is the living God. And he is our father. If we linger here, we might find that our priorities are quietly turned inside out. The contents may remain, but the order will change. With that change, we move at last from paranoia to prayer, from fuss to faith. The Lord's Prayer is designed to help us make this change, a change of priority, not a change of content. Notice that This is what the Lord's Prayer is doing. It's it's a prayer about your priorities. It's a prayer about your heart. It's a prayer about orienting yourself righteously to God. Now, I'm gonna spend most of the time on the first half of the Lord's Prayer because the Lord's Prayer is divided into two. There are three petitions at the beginning that are between us and God, and there's three petitions at the end that have to do with our neighbors. And many people have noticed that the Lord's Prayer actually mirrors the great commandments. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. The first half of the Lord's Prayer is all about loving God with your whole heart, and the second half is about loving your neighbor as yourself. And because I think most of us probably are more keyed in on the second half in our prayer life, I'm going to focus more on the first half of the prayer. And so you start out, and I want to give five priorities of prayer. Now, the reason for this is because Jesus says, pray like this. Pray like this. We have sometimes translated that as, pray this. 
And there's obviously nothing wrong with just praying these words. In fact, we're going to do it all together. But there's more to it than that. Instead of just repeating these words, take what Jesus says, pray like this, and begin to pray your own prayers that follow this pattern. Here's the pattern. Number one, start with God. Start with God. This sounds so rudimentary and basic, but do your prayers start with you or do they start with God? Do your prayers start with you, what you need, what you want, here's why I came to this meeting in the first place, or do your prayers start with praising God? Jesus himself starts by praising God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's nothing about Jesus in there. It's all about God. God, our Father, we pray that your name would be holy and glorified. This sets the tone for the prayer. Prayer is not primarily about getting something. Prayer is primarily about being something before God. And so the question is, how do I pray is a great question. How do I pray effectively is not a great question. How do I pray relationally is a great question. How many of our prayers really sound more like we've called a customer service department to, re- to talk about delayed shipping rather than adoration and praise of God? God, I want this. I've been praying for it. Why isn't it here yet? That's a very common prayer. God, I adore you. I praise you. Thank you. You are wonderful. You are almighty. That's a rare but powerful prayer. Jesus begins by praising God, and some of this is lost because when we hear the phrase, hallowed be your name, I don't know if you're like I am. I grew up in an Episcopalian day school. We said this every day. We didn't know what the word hallowed meant other than it's similar to Halloween. And uh, we were also taught that you are not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain. It's one of the commandments. And so copy and pasted this. Hallowed be your name means, God, I wish people out there would just stop cussing. I wish they would. I can't do much about it, Lord, but I pray that people would stop taking your name in vain, that it would be holy, that it would be hallowed. (laughs) And I want to peel back the layers a little bit on that. The whole Old Testament talks about God's name in a very specific way. If you've ever been to the Passion Conferences or if you have friends or kids who have been to Passion, the theme verse for Passion is Isaiah 26, 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you, for your name And your remembrance are the desires of our soul. Remember when when Solomon dedicates the temple. And he says, and the glory of the Lord is going to descend on the temple. Do you remember how they describe it? The name of the Lord will be in this place. The name of the Lord will be praised in this place. In the Old Testament, the name of God is a shorthand for summarizing God's reputation and his character and his fame and his priority in the earth. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we're not as much worried about his name as in people might be taking his name in vain as much as we are worried about his reputation and his glory and his praise among the nations. Laura and I just finished Ezekiel in our Bible reading. And if you've read the book of Ezekiel, you've noticed that like a hundred times in Ezekiel, God says, then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, the Psalms say, that people can run into, the righteous can run into, and they will never be put to shame. The name of the Lord, what we're praying in this first line is, God, show yourself 
to be the kind of God you are on the planet. Lord, we pray that people would see you and they would think of you as you really are, just and holy and good and steadfast and showing mercy to thousands of generations. God, we pray that through our prayers, you would make your name great on the earth. You could say prayers like this all day long. God, we want your name to be kept holy because you are holy. We want to see you high and lifted up, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory forever. This is the kind of prayer, if you open your eyes to see it, is all over the place in the Bible. God, your name and your renown, Isaiah 26, 8 says, are the desires of our souls. And I will tell you, even in Jesus' prayer here, prayer begins with praise. Prayer begins with praise. And a lot of times the disconnect in our prayer life, we're looking for all these little techniques and things and matrices that we can pray into and that that will be more fulfilling and effective. The problem with most people's prayer life is there's a lack of praise. There is a lack of adoration for God. It's like sending a letter without an address at the beginning. It's we come to God and we praise him. We adore him. We lift him up. And we thank him for being who he is. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Secondly, start with God. But secondly, commit yourself to him. Commit yourself to him. This is the tuning part. This is the A on the scale. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about how fundamentally different this is. And I'm not against praying for requests. There's a place in here to pray for requests. But think about how backwards this is. It's not... It's not we're asking God to do something for us. We're asking God to do something for himself. God, bring your kingdom here. Let your will reign everywhere on the earth. Most of you guys probably know Tim Mackey. He's the guy behind the Bible Project. And if you've seen those Bible Project videos, they are fantastic. In one of his videos, he does a great job explaining this prayer request. He says, most of us think about the world as two different areas, earth and heaven. We are on earth God is in heaven. They are separate. And earth is this physical place. Heaven is kind of a spiritual place out there somewhere. And we're kind of asking God to remodel the earth after heaven, make it look like heaven here on earth. But the problem with that view is God's whole plan is that heaven and earth would be united, that they would actually come together. And in fact, at the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible, they are united. Eden is a heaven where God is with his people. And then they get pulled apart a little bit, but they're still overlapping. They're overlapping in every person who has the spirit of God in them. You have one foot in heaven, and you have one foot on earth. And they're overlapping in every place where the rule and the reign of God is the law of the land. It is the thing that people live by and revere. In fact, Jesus begins his ministry preaching this way. Jesus doesn't say, hey, be good or trust in me, and then we'll all go to heaven in the end. He says, the kingdom of heaven is here. That's his first sermon in all of the Gospels. The kingdom of heaven is here. That's why on the night that Jesus is born, we see angels appear. And when we tell the Christmas story, it's like we see a choir of angels that are coming to sing, but that's not the way the Bible describes it. The Bible says a host of angels appear. Now, a host has become a very domesticated term because a host is a military vanguard. It is the very beginning of a conquering army. 
See, when Jesus is born, the kingdom of heaven is now coming onto the earth. And the people who came to announce it are not singing cherubs. They are warring angels who have come to proclaim there's a new king and a new kingdom. And he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. So Jesus then is just following that message by saying, God, we pray that your kingdom would continue to come, that your will would be done on the earth. And when we pray this, it's essentially us saying, and I want to be part of that. I don't want to be a part of the kingdom of the earth anymore. I don't want to be a part of the kingdom of darkness. I want to be a part of your kingdom. I want to commit my ways to your ways. I want to be a part of a place of love and joy and peace and justice. I want my mission to be your mission. So by the time you even get halfway through the Lord's Prayer, all you've done is praise God and align yourself with him. That's all we've done at this point in the prayer is, God, let me know what the standard is because that's where I want to be. I want to be with you, about you. I want to be all all of my life committed to what you are doing. And then you begin to ask for your needs. So notice the shift. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need today. The prayer shifts from a focus on God and aligning ourselves to him to God enabling us and helping us to live out the commands that he's given. And you've got to remember when you hear something like daily bread, to a Jew, this would have brought up one event. When they were in the wilderness and they were eating manna, which manna, if you remember, is not like a type of food. Manna means what is it? When it comes down from the sky, they just say, what is this? And they're like, that's what it is. It's manna. It's what, it, what is it, bread? And it comes down every day for them. And do you remember the rule about manna? If you gather more than your day's worth, it rots. Except on the Sabbath, where you can gather two days. And then it stays through Sunday. So they would have been thinking of that picture. Lord, give us the very rudiments of what we need to live for you. And I'm not going to talk too much about this today because when we get later in this, in this uh, passage next week in verse 25, we're going to talk about anxiety and provision because Jesus does a whole section on this. If you want to be content in your life, here's what you should do. If you want to be free of anxiety, here's what you should do. You should trust God for your daily bread. So the Israelites would have been thinking, this is just like manna. Lord, give us each morning when we come to you, give us what we need to do what you have called us to do. I saw an Instagram post the other day of a picture that a parent took of their child packing their own lunch for the day. So they let their kid pack their own lunch, and they took a picture of it before they got to school. It was like two fruit snacks, a half-eaten Snickers bar, some Doritos, and a Coke, I think, was what was in this particular lunchbox. Which, if you're a kid, that's great, because your only goal is, I want to enjoy my lunch. I want to eat what I want to eat. But if you're a parent packing a lunch, you have different priorities, right? Your priorities are, like, health and a well-balanced meal, and that they would pay attention at school, and that they would be able to do all the things you've designed them And the analogy for us is easy. Many of us in our prayers are packing a lunch that might be good for some of our priorities, but they're not the sustenance that you need for God's priorities. Here's the secret to prayer in all of the Gospels. Jesus says, if you will ask for the things that you need to do the will of God, God will always give you that. He will always give you that. Nothing good is withheld 
from those whose hearts are devoted to him. But if you pray for things that are after your own motives, if you miss the first half of the Lord's Prayer and you just dive in with, hey, for today, for my lunch, I'm gonna need this, 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 and this, your priorities are different. He's not gonna say yes to that prayer because he wants to give you things that enable you to do what he has called you to do. Fourth, confess your sin. Sin for a Christian, as we've talked about this before, but sin for a Christian is not something that all of a sudden undoes what was done before. It's like, this is like the faith where it's like, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not based on how I'm doing that day. That is not what the Bible teaches. Instead, the Bible teaches that you've been forgiven once and for all, for everything. So when you repented and you gave your life to Christ, you said, I want to follow you, it was forgiven from start to finish. Not like just up to that point and then you're on your own after that. It was forgiven all the way through. And so now sin is not something that in the same way will send us to hell. It's something that separates us in our relationship with him. It's like when you have a relational strife in your marriage or with your friends. It's, it's not like that, that one thing all of a sudden canceled out everything that went before it. It was now you need to reconcile. Now you need to actually go and, and make that right again. And so for Christians, your sin is not going to incur the wrath of God. It incurs the discipline of God. It incurs doing what God needs to do to bring you back into that relationship with him. And last, live for him. The last request in the sermon is, is odd if you're just categorizing these because the last request is about deliverance. Deliver us from evil. Because if you're going to pray this prayer, here's the first thing that's going to happen. The enemy would love to just wreck your life straight up, just like Job style. That is like number one on his list. He's like, if I could do it, I would do it. I'd cover him with sores and get rid of family and friends and isolate him, I would do that. But he will settle for just distracting you from doing what God has called you to do. If he can't just overtly destroy your life, here's what the devil will do. If you've read the screw tape letters, you see Lewis talking about this. If he can't wreck your life overtly, what he'll do is he will detach you from God and his plan and he'll just let you do it yourself. That's his plan. I'll either do it or I will just disconnect you so long from your source of power and strength that it'll happen in the long run. So here we pray for deliverance. Oh God, I know the first thing I'm going to face is competing priorities. Stepping back into the old self. Temptation to take the shortcut. God, I know that the moment I say amen, I'm going to be flooded with things that an hour from now will make it seem like this was a different world here in my prayer time than the one I'm currently living in. God, I know that when, we, when I stop praying and I go back into my daily, everyday life, my muscle memory and my reflexes are gonna take over. I know that I'm going to be tempted to live like you don't exist. Your kingdom is not the law. Your love for me is not True, but God, I pray that in that moment, you would deliver me from the evil one. Our prayer at the end of the Lord's Prayer is keep me safe until we come back to you. And I'm not just talking about on a daily basis. I'm talking about our life. Lord, bring me safely and completely to you when I see you face to face forever. So to conclude, I, I want us to think about how simple these pieces of the righteous life are. This is not complicated. Think about the things Jesus says. Pray like this. Praise, forgiveness, daily bread, deliverance. These are not complicated. 
These are the tools of a righteous life. These are the slow ability to tune our hearts to be like God. God, shape me and mold me to be like you. Empower me each day with what I need to follow your will. Keep me, Lord, from veering off this path because only you can do it. That's the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer. So what I want us to do this morning as Sean comes back up and leads us, he's going to lead a little bit longer time. And, and the reason for that is because I want us not just to say, well, that was surely interesting, but I want us to say, that's for me. How am I going to start praying like this? Take a minute this morning, even if you pull out the Lord's Prayer on your phone or on your Bible, and I want you to just take these words and start to put them into your own words. You can pray this just straight through, but there's nothing magic about these words. This is not an incantation that if you say this, all of a sudden things are going to change. It's a template for you to begin to pray like. It's a form for you to begin to fill in what's going on in your life. And so as Sean prays for us, even as you're singing in your heart, begin to pray like this. Begin to ask God to tune your heart to sing about his grace in your life. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you didn't even leave praying up to us, but you've given us this template. You've given us this help, this guide, Lord. And we pray this morning that you would prick our hearts in the parts of this prayer that we've been missing. Father, whether that's the adoration and praise or whether, Lord, we are so slow to come to you to ask for forgiveness. Father, there's something in this prayer for everybody this morning to say, I think I've been playing my own tune. So Father, form our hearts to yours. Father, help us to see through your eyes. Help us to love you and to love the people in our lives the way you've created us to do that. Father, transform us this morning through this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray.